Good morning, it's great to see all of you today. Yeah, we were, uh, we're doing a uh, rebuild here of the stage, and uh, I tell you what, the, the crew that we brought in worked wicked hard all week to try to get it done. They were here yesterday, and they're like, we're going to get this done, and Pastor, we're going to have it ready for Sunday. I'm telling you, they did everything possible. And then something happened at about three o'clock yesterday afternoon. Somebody in the crew said, Miller time, and out the door they went. So in true form, if you can't beat them, well, you know where I'm going with that. So we want to welcome you here today. We're uh, in the middle of a little reconstruction here, but it's, it's going great. We started a series called The Chosen Summer, and we're using a little bit of the uh, series that's actually on TV that you can watch. We're using some of the artistic visualization to try to kind of clean our palate or refresh our palate of, of what, how this dialogue that we see in Scripture may have actually played out. And to be honest with you, I've really been pleased. I've seen all three seasons, and I haven't seen anything that theologically rubbed me the wrong way. There's a couple little different, there are little different perspectives, but pretty much... Um, it's, it's nice to see Jesus with some kind eyes and a smile once in a while. You know, it's kind of like what you want to see at church once in a while, some kind eyes and a smile once in a while. And, and so I, the whole series has been refreshing to me. And we started talking about Mary of Magdala, and we talked about how Jesus interacted with her and how she had her identity restored. We looked at the life of the fisherman named Peter, who becomes the apostle Peter, and how he wrestled with control. He had to be in control. And we don't know why he had to be in control. We don't know if it was pride or anxiety. Don't really know. And, uh, but we, we saw how he messed up over and over again in the scriptures. And uh, how he had incredible confidence in the forgiveness of God. Absolute incredible. I mean, I, I, I'm glad I don't have any friends that are not writing down everything that I have done wrong. And then saying, oh yes, we're going to put it in our books. And almost every one of the Gospels, you know, one of the Gospels will have something about the resurrection. I mean, the Gospel of John doesn't even have the birth of Jesus. Oh, but it's got Peter denying Christ three times. It's like, oh, really? You could have done the birth of Jesus. We could have learned a little bit more there, but you're going to put my mistake in there. So Peter was somebody that could live with that kind of uh, public awareness that because he was trying to commu communicate to us that we can be confident in the forgiveness of God that so many of us need. Today we're going to be looking at a different person that kind of represents us. It's, it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus will give us an insight to the in internal conversation that we need to have with ourselves and with God and some of the struggles that we may have with God. So we find out who Nicodemus is in the Gospel of John. He's the one that writes the most about him. Uh, I believe Nicodemus is misrepresented, and I will make an argument for that today. Um, but Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, I know we use that in a negative phrase, like he's such a hypocrite, he's such a Pharisee. Um, Pharisee was a religious sect with political power and clout. Um, so I would say that it would be kind of like Christian nationalism a little bit today in our country, which I am not in agreement with. It's, so there's, there's kind of like this, there's like 
Jesus component, but America component, but don't really know where the right boundaries are and, and, and maybe losing Jesus because of the national thing and, or, or, or losing the national and the Jesus thing. I, I mean, it all gets messed up. Well, he was part of a group that was kind of like that. They, they had religious rigor. They believed in the Torah, the written Old Testament, but they also believed that oral tradition was equal to it. So they believed that the rules that Israel had come up with beyond the scriptures were of equal authority. Uh, They believed that Jewish practice was supposed to be extended outside of the temple, so they were pretty much concerned about what you're doing in your house and, and, you know, what's going on in society around them. There was this high emphasis on personal piety and how you conducted yourself and how you conducted your life. So there was a lot of emphasis there. And they were promoting uh, the, the belief in the afterlife, that everybody eventually dies and then, you know, you rise from the dead in heaven. So Nicodemus is part of this group. I'm not saying this is a bad group. Uh, none of us, no matter where we are, gets it all right. And we're all balancing you know, being American, being Christian, being uh, a man or being a woman, being parent, being a business owner. I mean, it's a really difficult struggle to do all the things that we do and, and to try to get it all right. And Nicodemus is in the middle of all this. But he's not just a Pharisee. He's a member of the ruling body known as the Sanhedrin. So he is part of the ruling body of Jews in this particular area. So he's a man who's well-placed in Israel, in Jerusalem. He is somebody that is positioned in Jewish life with influence. And as we go into his story, we need to know that. I mean, we do dealt with Peter, who was a fisherman, and he encounters Jesus. We dealt with Mary um, and, and her background, and we were told she had seven demons cast out of her. Now we're dealing with somebody with influence, somebody who's uh, well-positioned in society, somebody who has wealth, uh, somebody who has a lot of education, somebody who has a very religious life, not a negative, but that he has a very well-uniformed, structured life. But one of the things that we're going to see is that Nicodemus is out there with Jesus. A lot of people will hold this opposite view of Nicodemus, and I'm going to try to show otherwise, But Nicodemus, for his time, was really out there with this issue of relationship with Jesus and his connection with Jesus. Let me give you a for instance when you see he's out there. A dispute arises between uh, the crowd, the guards uh, of the temple, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. So so the, the in crowd, everybody there at the temple is, they're having this big argument about who Jesus is and what to do with Jesus. And Nicodemus is there. The people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why did you not bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Now listen to what the Pharisees say. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, 
But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Now, I want you to hear this moment. Because first of all, a statement is being made, a very absolute kind of statement. No one of the rulers has believed in him. Now, this is a statement being made by the A-type person leader of the group. You know, this is the, the person that's in charge. We don't know who they are, but this person has spoken up and he's saying, listen, nobody here believes in him. See, that is not a statement of whether or not anybody actually believes in him. It's more of a statement, nobody here better believe in him. It's kind of a, a policy reaffirmation. Whether everybody agrees with it or not, it is being stated to set an atmosphere here that everybody, this is what we believe. And that statement is being made, and it's powerful. Now, for Nicodemus, he's a part of that ruling body. He's part of the Pharisees who are making this statement. Now, we're going to see that he's going to emerge, and he's going to say something. But I want you to know how risky it is for him to say something at this particular point. One of the subjects that correlates real well with this is the issue uh, of evolution and intelligent design. We're all familiar with evolution, the idea that uh, natural selection, chance, um, and survival of the fittest are some sort of the elements that all happened and it all comes together magically, then all of a sudden, poof, 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 we end up with apes, and then after apes, we end up with homo sapiens, and then we put flags on the moon. Uh, and it all just happens that way. Now, if you're a chair of, of biology in any university, a secular university, in this country, I would almost dare say in the world, and you don't hold that to be true, you do not hold the chair of biology. If you all of a sudden decided to say, well, you know, we're about to have a debate down at the, uh, you know, down at Cambridge, and we're going to uh, bring in this intelligent design biologist, and he's going to debate with the chair of biology here at Cambridge and Oxford, and we're going to have a debate. We really need to hear what this person is going to say. That, uh, and that you were going to suggest that somehow that God arranged the amino acids to produce the DNA, to produce homo sapiens to arise on this earth, whether, however it happened and however long. But if you were to even suggest intelligent design as a chair of biology in any university in America, you would lose your job. It would be over. You wouldn't have to say that you would even agree with it. You would just have to even say, well, let's talk it out. Let's hear what they got to say. Let's hear what their proof is about intelligent design and amino acids and, and how proteins form and all the other stuff. Let's, let's hear. I mean, that's what we are, right? Well, here's what we're going to have, have happen with Nicodemus. Somebody has laid down the rule and said, listen, this is it. Nobody here believes anything else other than that. But Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, said, <clears throat> excuse me, sir. Uh, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? Now, let me, now listen to how this school administration responds. They replied, are you, a Ga are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. It's like, 
It's like, what is that? Why are you coming after me? Are you from Galilee? I'm Nicodemus. I grew up here. I was raised here. I've been a part of the ruling, the ruling group. I've been a part of the Pharisees for, for decades. I went to the university. Went, and all of a sudden, you're going to throw at me, are you from Galilee too? What, are, what did they infer from his statement? Association. Because his statement to allow a dialogue about Jesus to even happen was an inference of association. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Um, uh, it would be like uh, Professor Dawkins from Oxford all of a sudden allowing the um, BioLogos group to come in and start talking about the possibility of how God could have created the universe without an evolutionary, uh, by chance, natural selection process. It would just never happen. But the inference is made. And they immediately come after him and say, oh, really? Are you from Galilee also? You don't know what you're talking about. They immediately attack him. But Nicodemus, he put it out there. That was courageous. That took guts. He could have just let the air that filled when he said, none of us believe in this Jesus. None of us have subscribed to this. He could have let that in, the intimidation of his culture just shut him up. So the idea that Nicodemus is fearful or he doesn't believe, I'm going to have to push back on that because you don't commit professional suicide like this unless something is going on inside of your head about this person named Jesus. And if that was a hint of Nicodemus being a follower of Jesus, what he does next at the burial of Jesus is an indictment. So Jesus dies on the cross and now comes the issue of what do we do with this body? Later, Joseph of Arimathea called, I mean, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus by night. Remember that little phrase. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. Visualize that. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation for the Passover, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So Nicodemus coordinates with another influencer of the Jewish community to get the body of Jesus. This is no small outing. This is no small thing. See, there was great exposure in the burial. He's exposed now, he's out there. People are seeing this. He's getting the body from Pilate. This is a big deal. He is probably with Joseph of Arimathea. He is probably entering Pilate's house. So this is not being done, you know, by a man who's a coward. This is somebody who is out there. He, he's, we have no reason to think that he's involved with the burial of all dead Jewish guys 
at this particular time. But we know that he's going to Pilate, an antagonist against the Jewish people, and he's asking for the body of Jesus, and he's going with Joseph, and he's getting that body. So there was exposure in this, public exposure. There was expense in the burial. Um, there was this new tomb site that needed to be purchased in its location. Its location near the garden, from what I was able to find, is that this particular location was not where poor people got buried. There were a lot of other locations where people could have been buried, but this was not one of those locations. But a new tomb site had been purchased for him, and he was placed in that. That's something to consider. What does that say about association, that you would give this top location? Um, Most people who were crucified by the Romans were just thrown out. Their bodies were just thrown out. um, They were just left for dead or they were given some menial Jewish rite of burial. But pretty much nothing happened because they were labeled as a criminal or uh, a terrorist or a conspiracist or, or whatever. So most of the time, bodies just being thrown out. But that's not what's happening here. We've got Nicodemus going and getting the body of Jesus. Then there is the statement that we're told about the 75 pounds of spice and aloes that is being used. This is really interesting. At that particular time, the average Jewish person, which was the custom to be buried, uh, somebody of good reputation, when they were buried, they they were buried with spices and with these aloes and these oils, and the average was one pound per person. So the average Jewish person gets about a pound, and that's what takes place at at this uh, situation. Uh, Josephus records the burial of a famous Jewish teacher, and that person received 40 pounds of anointing burial spices. Jesus receives 70 five pounds of spices and aloes to be buried. This is royalty. This is unheard of. But we are told that Nicodemus pays for this. The estimates are that the just the spices alone cost between 50,000 to 120,000 in today's market. This is not a coward. This is not somebody trying to get rid of a bad problem or a false messiah. This is somebody that's being seen going down to a burial site with a dead body and carrying 75 pounds, an unheard of amount of spices to bury this man, Jesus. This is not the act of somebody who's trying to hide. Then there was the exclusion of the burial. See, because the problem is he's, It's a description that we get of how they buried him. It says that Joseph and Nicodemus took him and they buried him and then they anointed the body with linen strips. So we would tend to think of, you know, he was wrapped up in a big cloth and I think there was a big cloth involved. That was one of the items. But what Nicodemus and Joseph do is they've got these cut out linen strips. They could be about like that long, uh, would resemble bandages. And then they take them and they, they uh, put the spices on them and, and they put the aloe on it. And then they, they are individually 
entombing Jesus' body, laying these, these strips, okay? That's not somebody who's trying to get out of the tomb fast before somebody catches us. And that's also somebody who's not afraid of touching a dead body. And as a Jewish ruler and leader, he is now unclean for the Passover. The rule for the Passover would be that Nicodemus now has to leave the camp for seven days at the highest feast. It'd be like it's Christmas Eve. And then all of a sudden, you have to leave town on a business trip just in time to get back and New Year's just ended. You weren't there for the unwrapping of the presents. You weren't there when everybody got around the tree and sang, oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree. You weren't there for the Christmas Eve service because you touched this dead body. You weren't there for the pomp and circumstance on the Passover when all the great leaders, all the priests of Israel walk in together in their robes and like, like at a graduation. You know, you weren't able to, you weren't a part of that because you touched the body of Jesus. You weren't with your grandkids at Christmas. You missed the Passover. You were professionally and personally now excluded because of this burial. Nicodemus is out there. There is no reason for Nicodemus to have, to have come with Joseph to retrieve the body of Jesus and prepare it so intimately for burial other than a personal belief in Jesus. We don't know exactly the extent of that personal belief. A lot of people, even Peter himself, didn't know what the extent of his own personal belief. But there was enough that I'm willing to explicitly and by implication be associated with Jesus. You want to call me a Galilean? Call me a Galilean. Nicodemus sees something in Jesus and he's willing to put it out there. This is powerful. But this is not where we meet Nicodemus. I have actually in, intentionally kind of inverted the story for you. Because according to John's gospel, um, in John chapter 3 is when we first meet Nicodemus. This is when he first shows up. And even though he supported Jesus in open, there was a time when he had questions in private, like a lot of us. He may have eventually done everything that he did for Jesus in the daylight, but there were moments that questions needed to be asked in the dark. Let's watch. Thank you for agreeing to meet. I don't know where to start. I have so many questions. I... Shall we sit first? Oh, yes. slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. 
only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? (laughs) (laughs) Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That part of you, that is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things, huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. you hear? The wind? How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the Spirit, you can recognize His effect. mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents. And they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. 
God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. All about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? Shh. When I met Lilith, Mary, that day, I told my wife and my students, I said, she was beyond human aid. Only God could have healed her. And then I saw her healed. And here you are. The healer. I, my whole life, I have wondered if I would see this day. Follow me, and you'll see more. Follow you? Join me and my students. In two days' time, we leave Capernaum. Come see the kingdom I am bringing into this world. But I... I, I can't. You have a position in the Sanhedrin. You have family. You are getting advanced in years. <laughs> I understand. But the invitation is still open. The invitation to what exactly? <laughs> to lead a nomadic life? To, to give up who I am? It's true. There is a lot you would give up. But what you would gain is far greater and more lasting. Is this another one of your born-again mysteries? <laughs> uh, maybe. I know mysteries aren't easy for a scholar. Think about it. Hmm? Take your time. What a beautiful interaction. There's a lot of speculation why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. The idea has been floated out there that he was afraid of being identified as a follower of Jesus. Um, they was afraid to lose his position. Or maybe he was afraid to be persecuted by the haters. Uh, I'm not going to throw a lot of shame at Nico if that's what was going on inside of him because I have felt all those feelings. Um, I, but I don't know what, that this is what's going on. I don't think this is cowardice. I think this is being shrewd. You see, none of the writers say that it was fear. None of the writers that said that Peter denied Jesus three times, that Judas betrayed Jesus, 
that all the disciples had ridden, hidden and ran away at the time of the crucifixion, none of the writers said, oh yeah, you remember Nicodemus, he was afraid, so he went by night. Matter of fact, two times John makes a reference to Nicodemus meeting in this private manner with Jesus and only refers to it as he came to Jesus by night. So why did he do that? Because he had a lot to lose. Uh, This isn't his first so-called Messiah. For him to associate with Jesus is a statement that is going to reverberate through every part of his life. So I was looking at this, and the part that really touched me is, even though the story says literally in John 3, verses 1 through 2, and I'll tell you the dialogue of this interaction that we just saw in The Chosen was almost spot on with what is written in Scripture. Um, even though it literally says that, Jesus, that he came to Jesus by night, I think there's more going on in that statement. Now, I believe he literally came to Jesus by night. But I also believe that this is referencing something maybe even metaphorically. Um, because I, rev- I believe it's referring to the hidden parts or the hidden places inside a human's heart. That he came to him by night. I don't believe by night is referring to evil or darkness, that kind of evil. More, I believe it's a representation of what is going on in the inward parts. Because all of us have this kind of place. The place of thoughts where you have private conversations with God. And you're the only one having them. Nobody else knows what's going on with you. I mean, like you are having a private conversation with God in your life. Now, all the rest of us are seeing something this Today, you're here, you're saying hi, you're, you know, hey, it's great to be here, I had a good day, and, and you know, went to the beach yesterday, and, and we, we get that outward part. But when he comes to Jesus by night, I believe it's also referencing this idea of what's really going on in the dark, what's really going on inside of you. What's going on in your private conversation between you and God? We all have a dark place. Again, I'm not saying an evil place. I'm talking about the place where logic and imagination collide. It's where you think things out. It's where you speculate. It's where doubts roam around and mock you. It's where speculations live. It's, It's where disappointments reside. It's where ideas or regrets or hopes um, pass and, and reside within you. It's the inward parts, in the, in the dark parts of who you are, where you and you alone have a conversation with God. And I really believe every one of us have to do this work. We have to have the private inner conversation with God in the dark spaces in our angry spaces, in our violated spaces, in our criminal spaces, in our disappointed spaces, in all spaces of our lives. I think I kind of borrowed this idea from David, King David, who kind of talked like I did. He was a little bit of artsy-fartsy, just a little bit better with a sword. And um, he talked about God this way, and the way that he talked to God was very similar to this. And 
And in Psalm 51, he's having a conversation with God. And I, and I want you to see how him and God are having this um, by night conversation. Listen to his conversation with God. Behold, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, this is the conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus. It's in the dark space. It's in the private space where nobody else goes. And and every one of us has some sort of conversation with God in that space. I don't know how your conversation's going. You may be trying to avoid that conversation in that space. You may be angry in that space. But we all have this by night interaction with God. See, Israel was looking for a kingdom that started on the outside, that started with defeating Rome, and then it worked inward. But Jesus was one that was bringing a kingdom that first started in the hidden parts and worked its way out. That's how Jesus, this Nicodemus conversation is a conversation that every one of us here has to have. It's not a cowardice conversation. It is an alone private, dark, inward conversation about what's going on in your heart. I thank God for this conversation that he has with Nicodemus. I mean, it's like, so you tell me I don't have to stand up in front of the church and tell everybody what I think? No, you don't. You mean to tell me I don't have to go to a priest and confess all my faults? No, you don't. But you do got to have a conversation with God about it. There's got to be a time when you are in the inner parts, when in the dark spaces of your life, where you get honest with God, that you ask him about your doubts, you complain to him about your disappointments, that you share with him your dreams, your aspirations. But everybody's got to have this conversation. Israel was looking for something to get fixed on the outside, but Jesus was like, no, listen, this is all about the inward parts. I have observed that to liberate a man's body is only to prepare him for his next oppressor. To liberate a man's body is to only prepare him for his next oppressor because a new oppressor will come along. But to liberate a man's soul is to free him to live forever. Because if it wasn't the Romans, it would be the Greeks. And if it wasn't the Greeks, it'd be the Americans. And if it wasn't the Americans, it would be the English. If it wasn't the English, it would be the Romans. You know, I mean, this is the way that our, our world works. Free a man's body, you free him up to be oppressed another day. Free a man's soul, you free him up for the rest of his life and for eternity. And that's where Jesus was starting. Jesus told a parable about the the power of the inward conversation, the kingdom coming in first and working out. To his disciples, he said, it is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Where's this starting? It's taking this 
this idea, this conversation about Jesus, this belief about Jesus, implanting it in your own garden, your inward man, having that dialogue. And if it doesn't grow there, then it doesn't grow into a giant tree. If it doesn't grow there, then the birds have no place to land in its branches. It has to first happen inside every single one of us. That's where the kingdom of God happens. So I look at all this and I take away what I believe is to be the big truth of this story. That Nicodemus knew that to live outwardly with courage requires to live inwardly with confidence. To live big, I mean to cut strips of linen and put them in an an extravagant spices and to lay them on a dead body in front of everybody to see that only happens because you've had a conversation. We talked it out. We had a conversation together, me and God. And I now know where I stand. I know where he stands. And because of my inner confidence, I can live outwardly courageous. See, most of us, we don't talk about religion, which is ridiculous. I don't know, you know, we, we, there's like some axiom that we don't talk about religion, but everybody's talking about religion. I mean, everybody's talking about morality, and we're just fighting over whose morality that we're going to go with. But a lot of us will, will, will not be out there with our faith. And I'm not talking about, I heard a preacher this week. I mean, he was screaming. I don't know if he was in Tennessee someplace. And he was talking about if you're a Democrat, you're going to hell, get the hell out of my church. You're a demon filled, you're, you know, you cannot be a Christian, be a Democrat. And I, and I, I mean, he was just like going crazy. And the crowd was cheering. I mean, it was like, oh my goodness, you have lost your mind. See, I know what's inside of that man because I see the courage that he's living in public. It's soothing. I know. I don't have to be a prophet to know the hatred and the fear that's inside that man because it's lived so confidently outwardly. See, most of us don't live with the confidence of sharing Jesus, sharing the love of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the, the, the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. You know why? It's not because of political correctness or politeness in American society. We have lost politeness in American society. It's because most of us don't have confidence we don't have confidence in the inward places. Because I know you're confident. I'm looking around the room and I, I'm seeing a bunch of confidence. You people can sell stuff. I mean, I, I'm serious. I mean, it, it, if you work for Lowe's, then you're, um, you, you got, well, I don't know what they sell there with the battery packs. <laughs> what, what's their brand? The blue one, Cobalt or something like that? Yeah, yeah, okay, it's, uh, DeWalt, yeah. Cobalt, okay. So they saw that. And you walking, you working for Lowe's, you're like, there's battery and it's 18 volts. <laughs> you know, you're great. Well, you lose your job over there. So you walk over to uh, uh, Home Depot and then guess what you are? You're a Ryobi salesman. 
And now Ryobi, put the battery on. And it's interesting. I think the batteries are made in the same factory in China. They just stick Milwaukee or Black & Decker Ryobi on it. But you will sell it. Because, you know, that's what you got to do. You're out there selling it. Some of you will sell, you know, you'll sell uh, Mazda, you'll sell Ford, you'll sell uh, Toyota, whoever you're working for, you'll do it. You've got a Volvo man. We got all kinds of people that, that as soon as you find it, I'll sell that. I have no problems with that because you believe in that and you have confidence for that. But when it comes to Jesus, we're going to say Nicodemus was afraid? How dare we? He was not afraid. He was out there, but he had to have this inward conversation. He had to have this sit down with him and Jesus. And about, okay, I need to know. What do I need to do? What what are the implications in my life? He knew he had to have Jesus. And every one of us gotta come to the place where we take it and we put it on the table. Where we take our kingdom and our plan for life and we take it and we put it on the table. And let me just tell you, I don't care what side of the table you come from. If you're like Peter, you're coming from that side of the table. If you're like Mary, you're coming at it from this side of the table. If you're like John, you're coming at it from this side. Or you're Nicodemus and you're coming out of the table. Let me just tell you, when you get to the table and you put your life on there, Jesus has only one answer for you. You must be born again. Like, yeah, but I was raised Catholic. What's that do for you? I was raised Catholic. That didn't do anything. Well, yeah, but um, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Well, that's cool. That's great, but just because you love your kids, I'm telling you, that doesn't do it. It's like, yeah, but um, I voted Republican, and I don't believe in abortion. Okay, but uh, that didn't do it for you. It's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not as bad as... You know, Walt, I'm, the, I'm just pointing you out, Walt. Walt's no better than anybody else in this room, but you just happen to be there. That's what you get when you're in the front row. See, that's what happens. You want me on that stage. You need me on that stage. You, you, you don't want me being this close to you. Look at Cooper. We're all up in here now. Huh? <laughs> no, you want me back up there. Uh, I don't know how I got there, but you know what? I don't care what life you bring, how perfect it is, how religious it is, how worked out it is. When you bring it to Jesus, Jesus has got one thing. It says, listen, you not only are born of of water, which is referring to the amniotic fluid of the womb, but you must be born of the spirit. And and it's like, yeah, I don't know if I'm into all that. And he's like, listen, this is where it stops. You must be born again. Yeah, I don't want to be one of those born againers. You know, that's a little much. How about if I'm just a good guy? You know, you must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God come out on the inside, outside, you've got to surrender to it on the inside. So what's your conclusion about Jesus? You came to church today. That's pretty cool, and we're glad you came here. Um, you uh, think murder's wrong. That's cool. You don't cheat on your spouse. Kudos. Um, you, you know, I could just keep on naming you. You, you're homeschooling. Uh, it's prestigious and morally, ex, you know, <laughs> homeschooling. And I love it. My daughter homeschools. But let me just tell you: Are you born again? Are you born again? 
because that's where the whole conversation stops for Nicodemus. It's like all of a sudden he gets put out there. And so it says, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God and no one can perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. That's great. And a lot of you have been walking around Christianity, been born into Christianity. Your grandmother was a Christian. Your father was a Christian. Your mother was a Christian. You went to a private school, but you know, and you've got all this conclusive stuff in front of you. We know this, but Jesus is like, yeah, but that's not the end of it. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Are you? I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives flesh, birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So are you? Are you stuck? Because, you know, Nicodemus could have walked away and the story could have worked out a couple different ways. We could have had somebody else burying Jesus. You can't get past born again. You know, you really can't. I've, I've tried. Um, I, I'm not a big born again guy. <laughs> You're like, dang it, you're the pastor. You gotta be a born again guy. No, no, I don't like the idea of me dying and needing God to resurrect me into a new life. I like me some me. I mean, I... But Jesus is like, listen, Paul, you know, yeah, you got good hair. Um, But, and you've been married 35 years to one woman. That's awesome. You're a really good dad and you love your grandkids. You know, you got less than 200,000 pay on your mortgage. You served your country. You pay your taxes on time. Though I've had to get a couple extensions. And God says, yep, but you know what? You need to be born again. It's no longer you that needs to live, but me living in you. There's nobody in this room that gets around this. I love the depiction of Jesus being very patient and saying to Nicodemus, you got time to think about it, but you need to think about it. This is a conversation every one of us have got to know the answer to. You will never have more courage for Jesus in the world than you have confidence in your heart. You will never have more confidence for Jesus in the world than you have confidence in your heart. And if you are living without confidence for Jesus in the world, it's telling you the condition of your heart. That's a conversation worth having. It's the one that we're having right now. So if you're like me and you were raised Catholic and this born-again stuff was all brand new to you, what do you do? I mean, what do I do? Do I stop drinking? Do I promise I'll never smoke weed again? Uh, Tell me, what do I do? do? It's like, nope. You need to be born of the Spirit. So I go back to David and I looked at David's prayer in the conversation that he has with God in the dark and the inward prayers, the inward conversation. And I rewrote David's prayer. Now, 
I would normally tell you to get nervous whenever a pastor tells you he rewrote the scriptures. Um, I'm not rewriting the scriptures. I kind of wrote it as a prayer that you and I could pray, but with New Testament insight, because most of us, when it says, wash me with hyssop, we don't even know what hyssop is. Uh, So in Christ, we have an update and understanding in that. And you may have been religious all your life. You may have gone to private school. You may be homeschooling. You may be a hellion. You may be hung over today. And you just need to know, where do I start? It starts with a conversation between you and Jesus in the dark, in the inward place. So I am not going to tell you that you need to raise your hand or walk the aisle so I can count how many people give their lives to Jesus. Because what you do in the outward only comes after what you have had the conversation with God about the inward. Until you take the mustard seed of believing in Christ and put it in your own garden, it does not grow into anything. And yes, next week we're gonna have baptism. And and that, what baptism is, is an outward expression of an inward conversation you have already had with Jesus. So today, let's have that conversation. So I've rewritten it for you and you're welcome to pray it quietly as I pray inwardly. You're welcome to join me and pray aloud. If that works for your mind, my brain, I have to do things out loud for my brain to get them. And maybe you're here and you're like, I ain't praying that prayer. Then I have done my job well today because my job was to provide you with clarity about the conversation you need to have with God. And if you don't wanna have that conversation, you needed to know that unless you have this conversation with God, it doesn't go any further. The kingdom of God does not come. Now you don't have to phrase it like this, but just know this, that if your answer to the born again invitation of Jesus is no, just know That's it. Jesus doesn't all of a sudden decide, yeah, but don't worry. I'll put your kid through college for you. I'll do this for you. I'll do this. Oh, we can talk about your job and your race that you want. Oh, we can still have prayer conversations about this. No, we're at, we're at it here is where we put it all on the table. This is what Nicodemus did. It's what most of us don't do. So I invite you to join me as I pray this prayer for myself in a renewal to God. But if you've never prayed this prayer before, and believe me, I didn't know how to start praying either when I was introduced to Jesus. The disciples didn't know. They even asked him, hey, could you teach us how to pray? They were Jewish. How do you not know how to pray? You know, it's like, well, I was Catholic. I didn't know how to pray either. I knew how to spit out what I memorized, but I didn't know how to have a private dialogue with Jesus. So I invite you to join me if it is your desire to be born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, you desire truth and love to rule over the inward parts of my heart and mind. In the depths of my heart where no one else can see, 
you want me to know your wisdom. So I ask you to forgive and erase my sin by the blood you poured out on the cross. And I believe I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Enable me to hear joy and experience gladness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and give birth to a new spirit within me. I want to know Jesus and to see your kingdom come in my life. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. In order to live courageously in your family, in your marriage, and in our culture, we're going to have to learn to live confidently with a decision for Jesus in the inward parts. So as we invite you to come to the table of Christ represented by the bread and the cup that we serve you, it is a declaration. The Apostle Paul said, as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim Jesus. As you come up today and you take the bread and the cup, you are proclaiming Jesus, born again, born in the spirit. I want you more, God, in the inward parts. We invite you to make that declaration.